Well, good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good morning. Hey, there we go. That's great. You know, it's, it, this is a weird thing, you know, like a, a, a room full of people, one guy on this platform talking, everybody else listening. It, it's, it's a bit strange, really. Uh, so I like to have it feel a little more like a dialogue or a conversation, and so occasionally there will be some interaction. I was saying to the team, as we, Lord willing, leave some of the parameters and restrictions and restraints of COVID uh, in our rearview mirror, and as that recedes, things will get even more interactive, uh, believe it or not. Um, I like to spend time where you are, so I like to wander. I like to bring people up onto the platform. I like to have more conversation. And so now I'm getting the sense that that will be possible. Uh, and I know some of you are looking at me like this. All the introverts are thinking, oh no, don't come too close to me. Faith. What really is faith? If you were to write down a couple of sentences, what would you say is your faith? What, how would you describe your faith? What are some words that come to mind when you think of your faith or our faith? How do you express your faith? How, okay, thank you. What else? Love. Anybody else? Hope, strength, obedience, believe it's true, what? Confidence, waiting, okay? Unconditional trust, okay? Sorry? Life. These are some good ones. And along with understanding, getting, writing down some things that would describe your faith or our faith, the other question is how we express it. How do other people experience our faith? How do they experience it? The question that we are working with this morning is, what is an essential or inherent part of genuine faith? Later on, I will have a time of question and response, Q&R, and it's an opportunity for you to ask questions. Uh, and if you're online, uh, live streaming, you can text or email, and you can do that here in the auditorium as well. Text or email to ask at westviewchurch.ca, text or email, or you can stand where you are, and we will bring a microphone to you, and you can ask your question. And the reason we do that is because most often when we receive a question, um, it's a good question, and a lot of people are wondering the same thing, and so it gives us a chance to share in that question and in the response. Sometimes I have people bring questions when we're in the foyer after the service, and they ask questions like, oh, that's a good question. I really wish you'd asked that in the auditorium, because that would have been great for us to talk about. So that's Q&R. So let's go to the book of James, chapter 2. Yay! I'm glad there's still some children in the auditorium. 
James chapter 2, verse 14. Listen, uh, before we go, James is uh, pretty direct, and he's very direct here too. And I'm sure this generated conversation with the original hearers, and I'm certain that it'll generate some question and some questions and, and some conversation for us here this morning as well. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? There is a gross misunderstanding of faith in the congregation that James is writing to. There's a gross misunderstanding of faith. The Greek word is pistis. This misunderstanding of what pistis is. There is some faith that is actually no good. He calls it worthless. He actually says there's a kind of faith that is not one that saves. It's not salvific at all. He continues. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself if it has no works, is dead. Faith without works or deeds is dead. When I read this, it reminded me of a very popular phrase today, which is thoughts and prayers. Our thoughts are with you. He is saying specifically that faith without works. Now listen, he gets very specific. He says, faith without Concern, taking care of, practical needs of people in our immediate community. All of that. He's saying to the congregation that he's writing to that faith without being concerned for and taking care of practical needs of people in our immediate community at a minimum. Without doing that, faith is necros, it's death. It's without the life of the gospel. It's the opposite of the life of the gospel. He continues in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. The Shema, that's Deuteronomy 6. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Thoughts, beliefs, are useless apart from from deeds and action. It's what James is saying. And he says, oh, I can hear one argument. One argument is that they are separate. One argument is that, well, some have faith and some have works. And the argument is that you can separate the two. I've actually, in contemporary setting, have heard something similar. 
I've heard in the past couple of years, actually, someone has used this phrase, the cart before the horse, as though you had to get the sequence right, but that faith and works are these separate things. And what James is saying is to that argument, how would you show somebody your faith apart from some kind of deed or action? How would you uh, demonstrate or show it? What he's saying is that the acts or the works, the deeds are a reveal or demonstrate the reality or the existence of faith. And the deeds demonstrate and reveal the kind of faith that we have. So the deadly problem that James is addressing with his congregation is the shallow or erroneous understanding of faith. And I would say that that problem remains our contemporary reality today as well. That we tend to have a, not an absence of faith, but a misconstrued understanding of what faith is. And there is a dead faith. The, the communities and the neighborhoods and, and even in, in some places in churches and so on, the, there are, the, the areas are littered with the dead corpses of faith. That is what James is describing here. There is, we know, uh, the extremes of faith. I'm going to use, since James is being so direct, I thought for a moment I would be kind of direct as well. I'll use some categories of describing different kinds of faith. There is the right and wronger faith. A faith that is bent entirely on ideas and philosophies and thoughts that is founded on what is right and what is wrong. And that's the, basically the whoop and holler of the content of that kind of a faith, a right and wronger. It's ideas and thoughts and if there are deeds or actions, it seems almost antithetical to any kind of content that a right and wronger is actually holding as faith. The deeds don't match. And then there is the other extreme, which is the relative, relativist revisionist faith, which is that deeds and actions and life shape... Or determine what one believes. And both of those. Are dead. They don't have life. They don't have real life. You see there is a disconnect and a disunity. Between an understanding of faith and how we live our lives. I'm going to share with you some statistics from Statistics Canada, Stats Canada. I'm prone to go there once in a while. Okay. Now, if you don't like data and graphs and bar charts and so on, just bear with me because I'll, I'll do the narrative that accompanies it. But if we have that first slide, this is the uh, Stats Canada. Oh, just back up one slide, please. This is the Stats Canada report is religious, religiosity in Canada and its evolution from 1985 to 2019. 
Okay, just pause with me for a second. So religiosity in Canada from 1985 to 2019. The first thing you need to know is that in 2019, 68% of people said they affiliated with a religion. 68%. And that is trending, that number is trending lower and lower each year. That's the first number. Now let's go to the first uh, statistic here. Frequency of participation in group religious activities. Notice that number. Not at all, 53%. Once a year, 74%. So between the not at all and the once a year, 75% of all of the people that reported in in Statistics Canada, 75% of them were not at all or once a year. Next slide. Frequency and engage in religious or spiritual activities on one's own. Over half, not at all. At least once a week, 10%. At least once a day, 20%. Next slide. Importance here, listen. Importance of religious or spiritual beliefs in how to live one's life. You see it's split almost down the middle. Very important, somewhat important, 54%. The importance of what you believe and how you live your life. Now, the good news, if you go to the next slide, the good news is that amongst Anabaptists, which is our heritage, and Baptists, which is our particularity, the important, somewhat or very important, is 93 and 86. So in this narrow stream we hold to it being very important. I want to give you one more. Now, this one is interesting. What we're doing here is we're asking the question. Now, this is from 2017 to 2019. Just three years. 2017 to 2019. And it's organized by a year of birth. So the age of people. And whether they were born in Canada or somewhere else. Now, I want you to notice just at a high level the trend between the born in Canada and the people that were not born in Canada that are now residents of Canada. You notice that that trend, if you just look at a high level, the trend, if you look at the red numbers, or the red blocks, the trend is the same, although the numbers are different. Now, let's go down one level. Those red boxes indicate people that are affiliated with a religion and believe that what you believe should affect the way you live. The red box is those that are affiliated with a religion and believe that what you have as your faith is very important to how you live. And what you can see there is that number is increasing, uh, decreasing. Those that are born in 18, 1980 to 1999. So what I would say is that there is a trend towards a misunderstanding of what faith is and its connection to how we live. The deeds we do, the work we do, the way we live. Thanks, Jed. Is this a crisis regarding an understanding of faith? Is this really about life and death? What is an essential or inherent part 
of genuine faith. And now I'm adding in Jesus. What is an essential, inherent part of genuine faith in Christ Jesus? In Christ Jesus, particularly. Let's continue with what James is writing here. Verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham was justified by his Deeds, by what he did. Abraham. Abraham was justified by the, the word works is ergon. Ergon. This, you were wondering maybe what the title of the sermon was all about. Ergonomics of faith. The Greek word is ergon. And he was justified by ergon. That is that Abraham was so convinced that of the character of God. He was convinced that God's character was good, that God was absolutely good. And he was convinced that God was also capable and powerful to preserve life, to restore life, to raise somebody from the dead. He was so absolutely convinced of the goodness of God and the ability for God to reign over life that he was willing to sacrifice and give God his most precious beloved son. And he was justified brought into a right standing before God because of his, this expression of faith in God. Verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? Rahab, a prostitute, was also justified by Ergon. Do you notice the span here, the all-inclusiveness of this? We have Abraham, who is the patriarch of all the Christian descendants that come afterwards, who is this renowned figurehead. And then in the next sentence, James says, Rahab the prostitute. It's fantastic. And she too was justified by Ergon. Because she too was so convinced that God was good, the goodness of God, and that he could preserve life, her life, or restore her life, that she was willing to sacrifice her life, risk her life, in order to defend and protect these two messengers that Joshua had sent to check out the city of Jericho. And there, she was justified. Unbelievable. Well, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So faith without works is also dead. Faith and deeds are distinguishable but inseparable. A non-embodied pistis or faith is not genuine faith at all, as Matthew Bates would say. James is saying that the body, as the spirit gives life to the body, so works give life to faith. So then deeds are an essential, inherent part of a genuine faith. Let me demonstrate, uh, because the biology is a little complicated when he talks about body and spirit. And I couldn't demonstrate that way, but let me illustrate what he is saying here. Well, you recognize this? Anybody? What do you call this? What do you call this? It's a fan. It's a great fan. It's an excellent fan. What makes it a fan? What makes it an excellent fan? Right now, is that an excellent fan? That's a great fan. Isn't it an excellent fan? Oh. <laughs> now it's an excellent fan. There are these parts, but can you really, can you, if, if I took this propeller and put it here, would, would that be an excellent fan? If I took this propeller and put it here and I still had this, would that be an excellent fan? And is it an excellent fan if it's off? It's basically a paperweight. Unless it's on. Can you, you can set, they're distinguishable, but inseparable in order for it to be of any value. And let's not confuse deeds or work with the fruit or the results of the fruit or the benefits of it. Because the fruit is the wind, which is different. That is the outcome. But deeds and beliefs and thoughts are necessarily go together to actually construct what is Faith. But now, the good news is that I said faith in Jesus Christ. It's particular. We have faith in a God who doesn't just say my thoughts and prayers are with you. He prays for us. But when the time was right, God demonstrates, demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son and ultimately Christ died for us. Because he is active. 
And so we have a particular faith, a, f- a particular faith. And that's why I brought this, because there is a difference between these two. People have faith and the deeds, then they may have them together. And the deeds that we do reflect and demonstrate the faith we have and the kind of faith we have and the, who we have faith in. And if we believe that God is absolutely good and that He is for good, He is for goodness, He is for good, He is for your goodness, and that He is actually in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, then our deeds emulate that Jesus. So it's particular. So deeds are an essential inherent part of a genuine faith and deeds that emulate the ways of Jesus. And you may say, well, how did we get into this problem of these statistics? Where the trend, just in the, in the three years pre-COVID, 2017 to 2019, the trend is already moving towards less of a connection between f- what we believe and how we live, and especially between those 40 years and younger. Could it be that we have not... Could it be that we have not demonstrated this faith? Could it be that that our faith has been thoughts and prayers, but not active in deeds that emulate the life of Jesus? Could that be it? Could it be that we have so relativized and revised our theology that we have essentially emptied it of any content? Could it be? What James is saying is that faith in deeds is faith indeed. Faith in deeds is faith indeed. And they are necessary to be part of the whole. A unity and in balance, like the way, the truth, and the life. Distinguishable, but inseparable. Scripture actually says at times in in Revelation and in other passages in the New Testament that we will be judged by our deeds, by our works. And we're trying to think, well, how does that make sense? Because what at times the writer is talking about when he uses those words is he's talking about a full faith, not a beliefs and thoughts only, but a faith that is also marked by action, which demonstrates and reveals the existence and reality of faith. It's those links that I've included in the sermon supplement that are there. And the good news, the good news is that before Jesus ascended, he said to those in the crowd, to his disciples, and then John wrote this and others in the New Testament wrote this, that the Holy Spirit has been sent among us. In fact, when you accept and you believe and you commit to following Jesus as Lord of your life, the gospel writer John says that you receive the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit from God that is good. And the Holy Spirit's will, His will is to guide us. 
and to lead us, to convict us of the truth, and to even give us the courage. The word in Acts is, uh, for power is dunamis. It's dynamite. To give us the power and the courage to carry out the deeds that he has planned for us, as Paul writes in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability when you have that inkling that you should do this thing and you know that you should do it and you're not quite sure. And the Holy Spirit will give you the power, the power of Rahab, the power of Abraham. The power of the Holy Spirit. I want to pause here for a moment for some Q&R, some question and response. I wonder if it's generated any. Certainly, James will have generated some questions. One scholar said it seemed like at times he was picking a fight with the Apostle Paul in Paul's writing, but that's only at a cursory level. If we just do a quick surface level, a question, comments, yeah, we've got two here. Uh, the first one here has something with reverse engineering the... Uh... Sorry, just one moment. Kimberly, could I get my water bottle, please? I've been drinking water, but it just seems to... Imagine that. All this rain and it's still dry. Thank you. <laughs> also, yeah, we should also say that um, not all the questions have to come through digitally. If you feel like you have a question here now, I can come over with the yeah. microphone as well. Yeah, it's good. Uh, but the first question that we have here <clears throat> seems to reverse engineer what you've described cool um the question starts i'd expect no less from engineers in the <laughs> if the body apart from the spirit is dead similar to the fan without power would that imply the spirit without body is useless similar to electricity being useless without uh, a load for uh, example plugging in a cable that is not connected to a fan uh, so that's good so as the body without the spirit is dead, would that imply that the spirit without the body is also useless? Have I got it? It seems so, yeah. Okay, that's a good question. Let's speak just really practically. Like, I'm, I'm, I guess and it's a really good question, and I, it could be taken kind of like literally the question or even metaphorically, but let's speak literally. What we understand and what we believe is that Jesus will return one day bodily physical return of Jesus Christ. And that we will be raised physically bodily. Are you with me so far? So then, to be human is to be all of this. To be a unity of our inner and outer being. So, death then is a disruption to God's design, which disrupts that unity. So, the purpose, the intent in God's design is for that unity to be together. So, I wouldn't go as far as to say that the spirit, apart from the body, is useless. But I would say that that is not the intention or design by God. It is to be a unified whole. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, the tomb was empty. He was raised from the dead. But there was something different 
So there was continuity and also discontinuity in the sense that there was something different. He talked and they, people could hear him. They could recognize him. He ate. He breathed. And yet it seems to be that he could also arrive at places and go to places without the business of walking and such. So I, I would at least start there. But what I would say, if metaphorically works apart from faith, I would apply the same there. That it is a unity. And that's why I talk about our deeds emulating the ways of Jesus Christ. It's particular the way we live. So I call ourselves followers of Jesus. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, next question, we're going to try and run through because people are sending them in here. Uh, okay. Is the confrontation, I do believe this is in context of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with mm. the king. Is the confrontation between the three Hebrew boys and the king considered a deed of faith? And why do certain believers think this is extreme for today's world? Right. So is uh, the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an example of faith? And why would that be considered an extreme today? Correct. Right? Okay. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a good one. Uh, I would uh, use that as an example of faith. Like so wholeheartedly believing in the goodness of God, the character of God, that he is absolutely good and that he has good intentions for us, even while, like for Joseph, in the example of Joseph, even though his brothers meant him harm. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego convinced that God was good, convinced that God would preserve life, restore life, or, or, and so they could give his life. Yes. Why do people consider that to be an extreme today? In the 15th century and 16th century, so Baptists are part of the Anabaptist movement from the 15th and 16th century. At that time, the Reformation period, and then what followed from the Reformation period was the Radical Reformation, which is our heritage, which is that people in that Reformation era believed that just having these philosophical thoughts, religious thoughts, wasn't enough, but that they needed to live out their faith. And that's why it was called radical. And what happened is, they also believed at that time that they wanted to get baptized as an expression of their belief, believer baptism. And as a result of that, they were persecuted to the point of death. Even the Christian church went after these people in order for them to recant or be killed. Young women. I have story after story of account of young women, young men, older women, older men, who would refuse to recant and would give up their lives. That was not radical uh, in what well, was radical, but it was not out of the realm of possibility or thought in the 15th and 16th century. In the 21st century, we have traded a lot of this for what I would call comfort as a criteria of evaluation. And that's what I mean by relativism revisionist, where we have allowed life and certain conditions of life to not only shape, but actually to determine our faith. Awesome. Uh, you have time for one more? Okay, one more. All right. The uh, children are restless. The roast is burning. <laughs> no, it's not, because we're early. Yeah. All right. Does the spirit require a body? I think this is kind of associated with the first question we asked, okay. but it has a different nuance here. 
Does the spirit require a body, not necessarily a physical one, but a sort of tether? Okay. We're, we're kind of wandering a little. Um, So let me give this to you without going too far into neuroscience. But when, when, when we are restored, when we are raised from the dead, you will be you. There will be differences, but you will be you. So that necessarily means that there is a restoring of your inner being and what makes you you. So it isn't just a restoration of a physical body, but a restoration of you. And so would you call that a tether? I would need an, an, uh, about 20 minutes or so to, to unpack that. But there is a, l l let me just say this, that there is, by God's design, His design is that there is a unity of the human being, and death is a disruption, an enemy to that, as Scripture says, in Hebrews and in other places. And that concept of unity is so vital. The Trinity, distinguishable, but inseparable. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why Deuteronomy 6.4, the God, the Lord, the Lord, He is one. There is a unity that is absolutely vital. And that's why we bring it up when we talk about faith, this aspect of works and belief together. So, one more? Okay, and then, we'll, and then we'll call the music team up. Music absolutely. team, why don't you come on up already? <laughs> Should make this announcement as well. You might not have any questions right now. You might be paying attention and just listening to the different responses. But if you have uh, a curiosity that comes up as you meditate and think about what you heard today, Feel free to send it in. Uh, Pastor Gary loves hearing the questions. And obviously you can tell he's, he's very well read and he likes to apply that. Uh, so the last question here is, uh, how are we to act out deeds through faith without living by works, mm. but by the work of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. How are we to, uh, give me that first part. How are we to act out deeds yes. through faith? Yes. How are we to act out deeds through faith without performing works? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Okay, that's great. And with that, thanks, Emmanuel. Um, and and I, that's going to be a good segue. So I've included some links in the sermon supplement um, from the Apostle Paul who talks about works and the problem of works. And what he's describing is performance-based religion. Uh, upholding or trying to perform a religion that meets and performs all of the laws and thereby warrants righteousness. But it's clear even through Jesus' teaching that it's impossible to actually accomplish that. We can't possibly perform and get all of the laws right all of the time without ever sinning. Internal life, external life, if you hate somebody, if you lust after somebody, etc., etc. So the performance-based thing is a fool's errand in the sense that it's impossible to do that and it's impossible to earn your righteousness. Deeds, as part of faith, is based on a faithfulness to the Lord and emulating how He lives. 
And so we think about asking in a practical way, understanding our faith and how we express it and how other people experience it. And we can ask, what are some practical deeds that we could do that actually express our faith? To be open to what the Holy Spirit is already prompting us to do. To be aware of that. Asking for courage to carry it out. And then actually practically speaking. What are those things? And then discerning. Is it fear that's keeping me from it? Is it a sense of trusting in my economics or my financial well-being that keeps me from it? What keeps me from doing this deed? What keeps us as a church from doing certain deeds? Think about those thoughts. Are those thoughts from the Lord? Or are we placing our trust on something other than His goodness and His capability and His provision? When our community groups, when your community groups get together, you spend time studying the Bible, how much time do you spend talking about what you're going to do? in youth group, in young adults. Practically speaking, faith in deeds is faith in deed. 